Hello and welcome, I'm Robin Harford and this is another edition of the Eat Weeds podcast. Show notes can be found at eatweeds.co.uk forward slash podcast. I'm really privileged today because I'm sitting out in a beautiful walled vegetable garden that is part of the Ethicurian restaurant that is just outside Bristol. I'm here with Matthew Bennington <laughs> and Matthew and I and a group of other lovely people have just spent a whole day out foraging and coming back and making sauerkrauts and ferments and vinegars and I just thought while I had his attention I would cheekily get him on a show and he kindly agreed. Hi Matt. Hello. Do you mind being called Matt? Do no I don't mind no? at all. Yeah. Good. No, no, thank you Robin. What an amazing day. We've been out foraging up on the Mendips and uh, it's been an amazing conversation and we've uh, spent the time with uh, 10 lovely guests and and explored the wilds and a little bit of our philosophy be- behind the Ethicurian. If you're a bit of a foodie the chances are you will have heard of the Ethicurian. Your attention caught my mind years ago when you first started because you were one of the few places that genuinely seemed to be working with wild edible plants and various forageables in a way that had a vision that no many chefs had. How did it start? What, what birthed it? And what's the journey been like? And where's it going? That's a lot to answer. <laughs> it is, yeah. That should well, keep us going. The journey's been vast and it's been all over the place. It was born of the idea of creating something that was a little bit closed loop in essence. I'd been working within the food industry for 15 years and I decided at that point that I wanted to start working essentially on my own and to have a career that was based in and around sustainability, something that helped with the idea of permaculture, something that helped the idea of regenerative stuff. I wasn't entirely sure what that was at that point but I stepped off and started working at farmers markets essentially making foods that were primarily locally based buy foods from suppliers and producers around the southwest and at home we would cook them and produce them and turn them into kind of like foods and takeaway stuff to to eat at the next event so there was a a lovely merry-go-round of us us being all around the southwest and during that um, exposure to all these foodstuffs I started to recognize that there was um, like huge amounts of flavor and and quality of produce was was absolutely like unique and the more that we looked at it the more we realized that actually there's something to this i remember going to jekka's uh, herb farm one of her open days and here's me thinking you know salad salad isn't it right you know but she handed me some cut and come again herb varieties and some some salad varieties that literally blew my mind on the spot you know like the mustards the frills there were there were there were hundreds of things that just were like oh my word there's this other world of flavor there when when you find these fresh we didn't necessarily intend on getting a restaurant site at that point I don't think I had any plans to be a restaurateur it was just a journey I just was stepping off trying to create something of my own ilk at this farmer's market thing. We found the site that is the wall garden. Somebody described it as a cafe by the by the airport and that was doing it a huge misservice. Totally. Because actually it was this place <laughs> which for those that haven't 
been and visited it and seen it. It's nestled on a Mendip hillside. It has some of the most astonishingly grown produce. It has a, a garden that has thousands of varieties of plants, cultivars of fruits in an orchard that produces cider and apple juice. And, and that was here originally or yes. have you just expanded it? No, no, this was here originally. So uh, the landlord himself found this site in the 90s as a derelict venue and he looked at the scrap value of the bricks and said right there's a there's an opportunity here to to buy this and see whether he can bring it back to some sort of uh, functioning kitchen garden which is a huge vision yeah we met or saw the site at a point where the the tenants were off and wanted to do something else and it was just felt like the most obvious next logical step in our kind of culinary exploration We'd already decided at that point that we were going to limit ourselves to what was in season within the UK foods and look as closely as possible as we could to, you know, wherever we are, were farmers markets, you name it, for that produce. And here was this garden with everything in it that you could imagine grown to a level that we'd forage as a living kind of larder. And yeah. there was like, yeah, it was, it was tense to begin with because how do you even set up a restaurant without any experience. We had no skill set at all, but we knew that there was the opportunity. We took on the lease and that's where it began. How did the foraging side come in? Because I said before I turned on the recorders that I came and ate here and I looked at those shelves with those jars of potions. Yeah. It was like coming into a culinary apothecary. <laughs> And it really stood out. And people actually said today, as we walked in to the restaurant space, which obviously there's no other clients here, it's just got a presence there. It's got a beautiful quality of that classic vegetable wall garden. Mm -hmm. It ticks all those boxes for nostalgia. But where did the forageables come? Because I was looking at these potions going, that's all foraged plants. What's yeah. going on? I was really fortunate to have the what you might call forest school aspect of things which was scouts and cub scouts as a young kid and although of course you know you go off to uni and you don't really pay any attention to that stuff for a little while it's always been there as an interest of mine so yeah. with an interest in permaculture and the natural outdoors that was here before we opened the restaurant and it was my view that if we're going to limit ourselves in the ingredients in the way that we chose to we need to look at the wider locale and it's for several reasons. It's not. It's not just as like uh, we think that there's there's food to be had. It's more that there's a philosophical fun to be had in learning to be curious and understand nature. And as, as soon as I could at the restaurant, I was trying to put a foraged element on most dishes, not for any calorific value or, or anything like that, but more just to spark an interest in that subject for our guests. So there might be cuckoo flour available at one time of the year and we'd make a note on the menu that said that this has got a cuckoo flowers described as an ingredient and then customers would ask us what on earth is that and they would allow us the opportunity to have that open discussion about like a, a wild mustard that's available that's yeah. beautiful flower as you know and so it's a very natural process that and also very rewarding because you, you need a time away from the stoves as such and everyone here forages or is it just a, a year and 
no, no, it's, chef and it, initially, initially part of the was. culture. The yeah, the culture is culture the culture's is. developed astonishingly to that level. I now live in Scotland as well, so I'm further removed from the restaurant the past couple of years. Um, I'm particularly fond of the Scottish wilds and the opportunity to continue this craft up there is something that's calling out for me. But in essence, the entire restaurant team have been left in a position where everybody from kind of bar managers to the team that they can take out on any foraging opportunity, they're all doing it. They're all doing it on their own, of their own accord and yeah. coming up with recipes based within the kind of thing that we've taught them. So. Yeah. They're, they are freestyling on those natural plants in a way that I would wow. have done when I was in Great. the kitchen. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it never fails to astonish me that that the team are doing that without my direct guidance. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. You know, my head chef um, and co-owner, Mark McCabe, he is absolutely fascinated by that subject. He himself works with other foragers directly, foragers himself. Uh, he has that bug, Yeah, you know wants to know about every opportunity for a flavor that is as obscure as you can find yeah, yeah. and so yeah it is it's just baked into everything we do and then this idea of keeping that larder in the background is really useful when we have certain limitations so if someone comes to it for a meal and they've heard of the foraging and they know your reputation and they're seeing say cuckoo flour have customers come back who have then got the bug been bitten i mean my my concern is that often it's more of a kind of social to do i've done the epicurean but i also know that it doesn't always work like that that people might come with that agenda oh, i just need to go to the epicurean but actually something strikes a chord and their their heart to be a bit hippie gets sung to yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i mean I, of course there are restaurants that seem to be on people's kind of hit list just to to be ticked off i think thankfully we've flown under the radar just enough in that sense like, a, like avoiding michelin to a certain degree yeah apart from the, like the green michelin star of course there are restaurant hunters who come to do this but actually most of our guests are either fascinated gardeners have some sort of history within loving gardening or the outside world and they come to us because they want to come and look at that um you know and the fact that we're doing fascinating things from a culinary perspective seems to be a draw we seem to get a really high amount of return guests yeah. who go on to decide that at one point they eventually want to come and do their wedding celebration here or mark's specific really important events with us. So that seems to be the mainstay of our custom now, really. You were in at the start of the whole kind of wild edible plants entering the culinary culture. And I think you started 2008, was that right? Yeah, yeah. So you started the same time as I did, Yes. basically. I think I've followed you from, from that point. Yeah. Sure. yeah. What I'm trying to ask is, how have you seen the foraging kind of bug change in that time and do you get a sense of where that might be going within the restaurant trade? I see the most sort of impassioned individuals and chefs and front of house team are the ones that seem to to have a real interest in understanding the wider natural world we, we've managed to cultivate that 
and be a place from which people can come and explore it. And the ones that succeed and do really well with us and have stayed with us and, and so on and so forth, they want to be part of that narrative about how they've been out in the wilds, understood nature, understood why something is more delicious. Of course, when you go out in the wild and you see that there's this myriad of other flavours, it's very inspiring to be able to take those, bring them back, and that the platform of the restaurant allows you to be creative and explore that curiosity. We're nurturing in that sense, and I see that that, in the wider restaurant scene, has definitely borne a more caring approach amongst chefs, first and foremost. Of course, you can look at suppliers list where you could pick from any item in the world sure and create something from it but these chefs are very uh, and friends of mine are often very uninspired by that level of being able to choose any ingredient um, as soon as you go to them well you can't use these ingredients because we we've said that that's not part of our ethos what you're going to do they then go on to really think about what they're doing and it, I think it spurns a kind of really thoughtful creativeness. I think that's fascinating, creativity and constraints within developing something that's useful for the world is actually really important, like you've just said. Constraints allow us to be really creative. Yes. It almost forces creative. It's a forcing mechanism yeah. to figuring something out. Whereas, like you say, if the whole world is for you, well... You haven't got that pressure to perform, yeah. I suppose. And I don't mean pressure to perform in, for someone else. I mean for yourself. It's yeah. like a... Yes, if there isn't a problem to solve, then yeah. you know, what can you do? Like, people want to feel like... People want to feel a connection to being useful and have their input. Yeah. Everybody craves that, I think. It's really interesting. So I'm assuming, from what you've said with your team, that they may be in their 30s, age-wise? Yeah, up to that. Okay, yeah. so the, the, what I'm trying to work yeah. at is I'm very aware with my grandkids who are nowhere near that age and people who are in their 20s and 30s that they're also incredibly climate aware. And I'm wondering whether or not that pressure of climate breakdown is why your team is interested in regenerative mm-hmm. food Agriculture, I don't know what the word would be. Because you're not flying stuff in from abroad, are you? I mean, you're... We've never imported a salad leaf to, into the restaurant. Right. Like, yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, of course we bring in acreage of, of potatoes in the year, but to have never brought in a salad leaf in the entire 13 years or that's so... That's extraordinary. Like, bonkers, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. But, but that's just because we've been here in this space, but... So was yeah, the climate so... thing part of that? I mean, was it about ecology and environmentalism and... It was for me, to, it is for me to begin with. Um... I, f- I feel like it's a really it's a really moot point because yes there's industry within food which is definitely abhorrent and the wrong way to produce food yeah and what we've tried to do is be the best example for what we think is going to help the environment and the locale and long term seems to make the most sense in a sure. in a in a regenerative way I'm also aware that we're probably really quite tough on ourselves in in that sense. Food and enjoyment and gathering around it should be just like a human right. Yeah. And here we are picking it apart, making it even more sustainable. Every company seems to, that has a restaurant, seems to feel the need to rush to shout green credentials. Yeah, yeah. I think it breeds this like slightly too cruel thing. There are way more 
difficult, complicated evils that need yeah. addressing. I think the people that come to understand a little bit about what we're trying to do are definitely focused on how this path in life can have a lesser impact, a yeah. lesser footprint. We're really lucky to have had a team come through in that sense. And a lot of them go on to do fascinating things and, mm. and projects that still have a similar ethos. So with the ingredients and the flavours, there's such a spectrum, isn't there, of yes. flavours from the ingredients. I know your chefs are all doing different things, but for you personally, where are you dragged to? Because I don't, <laughs> I often say to people, well, you might think you're in charge, but I really don't think you are in charge. The plants are in charge. And Michael Pollan in Botany of Desire, his wonderful book, wrote about humans being pollinators and therefore plants cause themselves to have appeal yes. in order for us as humans to come in and yes. propagate them. Yes. So at the current time now, what's grabbing you? I want you to riff on this because I've just had some of your black currant wood <laughs> yeah, the vinegar, vinegar yeah. Yeah. which was flipping awesome. And I'm just really curious, how in God's name did you figure out to, to just chop up a load of blackcurrant wood and stick it in some vinegar? What's the creative process going on? Um, Are you even able to verbalise it? Because I know that can be a really hard question. No, not at all. It's endless curiosity is the thing. Right. Um, yeah, I know for myself, for Mark, there are so many like moments where we go, why? Why is something like that? And it, it just makes us want to go and look at an alternative, a, a different way of processing something. Did you hear that this forager has tried this and it's supposed to taste like cocoa? I think I'm really lucky in that like, we've based flavour as the primary thing that we're focused on from day one. And so I feel like we're sat on a really healthy kind of skill set that, that allows us to to say whether that roasted lime uh, seed wasn't quite, you know, it wasn't quite chocolate. There was maybe a bit of cocoa element there, but yeah. we could pick out several of the flavors that could have been described better than just saying that it was chocolate. Um, but yeah, flavor has led everything that we do um, and led all of the curiosity in what we do. But then if we can apply it to just so many different things, it's kind of endless in that sense. Yeah. But endlessly fascinating. We obviously at certain points have made alcohols and vermouths and tried to geek out on the best versions of those and how we can improve it to the point where it ends up in selfridges and for a short while or we look at fermentation and take a recipe for kimchi and just develop it to a point where we, we, we're like well this should be like a, a family heirloom recipe now because it's delicious or to look at how spices and flavors interact within within ferments or I don't know, dare say garums and all of the crazy yeah. stuff that we've all learnt, you know, on the back of... Uh, so just to explain Noma. what a garum is to people who don't uh, it's know. It's like a hydrolyzed protein. Uh, Which means what, hydrolyzed? Well, it's a digestive process that's going on. So uh, it's like, it's. I think it, the fish sauce is probably quite a good way of okay. starting off how that idea works. But actually, some of the bacteria that's within the fish's gut would have been the thing that started the ferment process when back in Roman times they would have been making garums and fish sauces on coastlines and right. all around the world ah. and that process is it a Roman is it from that era I probably say long much older than that okay. I, I would have I would I'd imagine and it's a Europe North European kind of uh, cultural that word garum is it tied for this I suppose location? It, yeah, yeah I suppose okay. the garum, garums would be 
yeah, would, would have that kind of like lineage of history, but they were largely in and around Mediterranean hot spaces yeah. in which if you can keep something at 40 degrees or thereabouts in, in a vat next to the sea, it's gonna, carved out of stone for instance, the fish is gonna break down and become this like a marmy salty yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Wow. Uh, sauce. But you can apply that to, gosh, many types of protein. So it could be egg white or crickets or you name it, or you can make a, a, a flavor yeah. from that, that product. That's that, interesting, because I asked Sandal, so, okay, Sandal Katz, who's the kind of the, the, mm-hmm. the god of fermentation, as we all know, <laughs> a, a troublemaker, because he's changed the whole culinary world <laughs> with, his, with his knowledge. I asked him at a gig, I said, oh, can you ferment crickets or some or grasshoppers? And yeah. it was in, a, in an audience where there were a lot, obviously a lot of vegetarians, there was a lot of booing and hissing at me for daring to ask the question. And he mentioned this similar kind of, yes, you could most probably break it down into a soya tamari kind of mm-hmm. seasoning. The garum thing is Roman Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. You mentioned kimchi, which is Korea. Are you actively looking at other cultures, traditions, or is it just as it comes in? Are you looking at traditional British foods that may have been forgotten, like you vejus and yeah. stuff like that? I mean, or I is it literally just whatever comes in on the tide? It is a bit of that, yeah, for sure. We've always liked to understand the whys. I think that any moment we go, like a garum, what on earth is it? Why is it? How can it be twisted and played with where does it come from yeah. that sparks the kind of research element of what we do that's just mad geekery isn't it yeah you, totally. like, if you great you know of the of the certain <laughs> mindset you just end up doing that yeah you go down a rabbit hole of this for a while and sometimes it comes to something really great and interesting but actually tying it into a historic element and then being able to describe it to people who come here and or, or the team themselves and for them to understand why it has a history, I think is really valuable and we encourage it. So the future? The future, yeah. I mean, we're at a point at this, at the moment, where we've decided to actually hmm, slightly hesitantly leave the, the walled garden itself okay. for now. Yeah. Okay. The world that is hospitality is very, very tough at the moment. Yeah. It is like everybody, you know, across the country now knows this there's a, a very tough struggle going on. Yeah. We had hoped that we'd be a very resilient type of business because we said we would t- attach to local food networks where we're trying to champion the idea of localized food, having a garden and being sustainable. But I think unlike Scandinavia at the moment as everybody is aware, the UK is in a very unwealthy state. Yeah. And it is very very difficult to make any kind of project like this work so we've taken the decision to shutter this for now and hopefully maintain our brand and all the identity and all of the information that we have around it and see where that takes us on our next journey in all honesty we're looking at next winter going like there's no way we can survive it i don't think it's going to be so tough it would take a monumental amount of people to come here and what we're hoping is that we at least get to the end of september october ish and we've this year this year yeah and and we've done everything we can to do it in a positive 
and a progressive way is a celebration of what we've done. So yes, there are lots of potential nets. I know Mark would love to have a restaurant space. He will go on to, he will go on to great things. Um, yeah. I would hopefully pull him, we pull him up to Scotland where World Food's amazing. And I would love to hopefully work on a little bit more of the educational ess- essence of what we've, we've been studying and exploring. How do you see that unfolding? The Because edu- I think education is definitely really important. Yes. That people don't just come for a meal, that there is a whole kind of ethos behind. I know that with people like Pucker, who mm. do the herb teas, that yes, people get caught in on the front end of the herb teas, but behind the herb teas is a whole educational establishment mm. on educating people about plant, plant medicine, actually. I yes. made it. Yes. yes. Sebastian's kind of thing. Yeah, Sebastian's a regular here. Okay. Again, it, herbalism, the understanding of plants, it must be there in the background for them. Yeah. For you, with, for the, with an educational, when you mention the educational, how do, you, how do you see that unfolding? As that will, I get a sense, will be part, a big part of your future. Yes, sure. We're in a really interesting paradigm in, in human history in that uh, school aside and, and universities aside, you can learn anything you want right now if you are hell-bent on trying to understand it. Yeah. And you can get on the internet and you can do it. And actually there are a lot of successful people um, who are using that as a business model in which a little bit of being a public face of, of a, a brand and an identity and the right kind of funnels allows you to essentially build courses, do online content. Obviously there's video content that could be described. Sure. Uh, there could be more hands-on courses things in that realm but I do think for the meantime until things start to pick up in the UK and things get a little bit fixed from a kind of a much more top level approach because there's no doubt that the past 10 12 years has been terrible there complete fuck up isn't it really can we keep that in oh, sorry <laughs> <laughs> no I'm, I'm more than happy to keep that in because I agree okay so I'll let you finish and then I just want to riff on what you just said because I think it's important actually it's really flipping important I know that there's definitely a different business model for us in in the future, which is much more based on probably within the realms of uh, the internet. And that's that's great because actually we're not really limited by a a walled garden. Apple is a walled garden because their apps and their development has walls and it has this place at this site. Aside from having, we really should have had rooms here for people to stay we might be in a different position here but ultimately we are one site in a corner of the world that is limited by the number of people that can come to it and the amount of physical input and time that we can do on it and actually there's a different business model out there now which is the realm of people learning themselves and And then having experiences on the back end it almost feels that it's flipped the culture's shifted that less people are eating out, more people are eating in. Mm-hmm. As they eat in, they're going to want to learn more. So there's the education, the virtual education becomes the front end yes. of, a, of a restaurant business, say. Yes. Or a restaurant ethos and the in-person experience mm-hmm. of the real wall garden, wherever that might be, might be Edinburgh. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. there's some beautiful wall gardens up there. Yeah becomes more the the back end they can explore that yeah yeah Yeah, exactly yeah i didn't really know where this conversation was going but there's some passion here coming up your passion for your ethos of how you present your unique food tradition to the world which is something that flipping hell how sad for me i have eaten here and i've always highly 
valued what how, what you've created here as a team and I just and I keep hearing this down in Devon with restaurateurs that it's becoming a bit of a bloodbath if you had the politicians those people who you've said have made a fuck up for the last 10 years and and I don't think anyone this <laughs> even I know people who voted for them have voted mm. them since they came out of the nappy yep. and even they are turning on them yes. so without a kind of let's go and lynch the bastards rationally if you had them sitting right here and they were really genuinely interested in supporting and helping the hospitality industry what would you say to them uh, what was the book Zootopia Caroline Steele. Caroline Steele's book. I literally wept when I read that book because it was so on point. And it it just made me go, why on earth are we not making food the very centre of government? The whole reason for having parliament, it should evolve around that one subject. We all know that everybody that's in and around the subject of food is going, it's the one thing that could nurture our health, medicine, yourself, you're wild on, on all of the kind of ways that we can create medicines from our own forage stuff. The, the way that we can fix so many ills about our own selves personally, mentally, physically is tied to food. So why on earth do we not have that as the main aim of any one government party? It was the idea of the Carolines in that book that sparked a real, like that's a revolutionary idea. Yeah. I know nobody that's in government really is in it sadly for those kinds of reasons i'm sure there are a few yeah but we need to turn the tables on the whole that whole system in itself and what would i say to them if it's not apparent to you that we need to change things from this part of how we produce food the culture that surrounds it and every way in which we engage with it healthily you must be corrupt because it's the truth isn't it we all know it and yet there's nobody really representing that for us at the moment it feels. Yeah. And that's and really on all sides it. of the parties, all parties. Yeah, so yeah, there exactly. no one's yeah. got your interests or any of our interests, really. That's where it's gone quite dark. Yeah, I know. And I know you've tempted me into that in, in saying that. But it, it is what I believe. There are so many inroads that we could make into the, how we structure the government. It's very hard to know whether we can change it from a grassroots level. We've tried here. Yeah. And I know we've had a lasting kind of impact on so many you know, people that have come through our restaurant as guests or and or staff that, yes, we've changed things to a certain degree, but we're fighting from the bottom. Sure. You know, um, sure. Uh, but always encouraging people to, to take that fight in, in themselves. Personally, we all benefit from having a, a really careful and thoughtful approach to how we in, interact with food. It needs to be changed from a, a child toddler age yeah and there are ways of doing it yeah there are ways of engaging it I know plenty of people that have projects my own family members that have projects we engage with children yeah and teach that and equally we have to hope that like you're saying the youngest you know, the younger team members that are coming through they're realizing that food and nutrition and everything that surrounds it is probably the most important part of anybody's uh, should be the most important part of anybody's day absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm over, I'm older than you, but when I'm with my grumblies, <laughs> we kind of go, oh, why did they remove how to cook from the curriculum? It's just not nuts, really. Those old, old-fashioned things which mm. were deemed bad. When the pandemic hit, I was listening to kids reading out what they were eating, and it was just frozen, frozen, frozen. And mm. fortunately, 
again, the 20s and 30s have this deuce appear to me to have this interest in in food. I'm in a bubble, so maybe that's just I'm just in that bubble and thinking the whole country's got that. But I think what Caroline was talking about in her books, it's it is fundamental that people get a handle on food, a respect for where it comes from and what's involved to get it to you. Mm. I have to say, today has been absolutely astonishing for me. I've had an amazing time. <laughs> Just to see your name on the list for my foraging course last week was a complete surprise because I've followed your work for ages. And then I was like, what on earth? And then we introduced you to the good team that we take out foraging today. And we had such a fascinating conversation with that team out up on the hill. And it's that it's seeing the enlightenment, the enlightenment, excuse me, that those people get from just taking a wander in the wilds today and understanding, like, firsthand, you know, what all of these things can bring and bring back when you come back into the kitchen. Yeah. Um, and yeah, no, no, this chat has been wonderful today. I think. <laughs> to continue afterwards like this. <laughs> well, thank you for all your kind words um equally as you know i was really excited to turn up let me just say something i get a sense in this conversation that you've you felt maybe you haven't shifted the culture enough but from the grassroots bottom up Mm. and i really get that and i just remember watching schindler's list which is about the guy that saved five thousand jews from going to the camps yeah at the end of that you see the people walking through the graves, the survivors of the Holocaust, and there's this saying that comes up from the Talmud, and it says, you save one life, you save a generation. I yes. like Taoist philosophy. Yes. Okay? That's, if you wanted to bag and tag me, yes. I'm not a Taoist because I'm really crap at being one, but <laughs> that's, I, I aspire to being <laughs> to Taoism. And it is that thing, of, it's like the butterfly yes. chaos theory, People come to our gigs, they come on my events, they come on your events. And not everybody will, but some of them will go off and do incredible change within the world that we most probably don't even see. Yes. So I think in those moments of like, oh God, I didn't do enough or whatever can come up, Mm. because I know this is quite a hard time for you. Mm -hmm. It's a hard time for loads of restaurants. Just to hold to the wave that you have drop that little pebble in the pond and it's sent a ripple out that is affecting an awful lot of things that you can't even see yeah yes it was like i remember hugh fernley saying a similar thing about he's making efforts into trying to explain things to people and if anything if it changes continuate you know continuation ever so slightly then in some a small effect or a small ripple it could be a big ripple then and we're all doing it that's the point we're all we're all making those ripples that then become a tide yes it also counters a lot of the doom and gloom that I think is, yeah. is, is probably being forced upon us um, to keep us, you know, in certain amount, certain fearful states. Sure. And Anxiety culture. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And I, I grew up in an era where I feel like even back in the 80s when I was a kid, I was very aware that there were things like acid rain, there was like deforestation, yeah, logging. Yeah. We were told yeah. that it was going to be a cataclysmic event. Yeah. Year on year on year on year yeah. on year for, for, for so long. And yet... We sit here now and we're looking at the, the, you know, it's it's still beautiful, isn't it? Like, it is. 
Surely we need to at least have a measured approach to the amount of stuff that we've been told that we ought to be worried about. Yeah. And to kick back about that a little bit and say, yeah, well, no, we're doing the best we can. Yeah. And we should really be, we should really celebrate the fact that potentially each one of us are making incremental change. Know, better changes. Yeah. I think we were talking about the Taoist approach to vinegar tasting. Today, yeah, 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 yeah. Where, <laughs> Explain yeah. that. Explain that to people well, who are listening. Confucius or one of the Taoists was talking about how he, he'd give vinegars to different people to taste and some people would say, oh, it's bitter, it's sharp, it's horrible. Others would t- say that they could taste the sweetness or the other elements within that vinegar and uh, it was more a matter of perspective that everything is in fact just an experience and how you view that experience is entirely up to you yes and you can take a path of one or the other if you want or you take a path of both and yeah i guess that's a in similar ways how we can approach how we are all doing yeah (laughs) and you know how how we are all progressing or what would your final words be to to people who are listening to you what my main aim and the thing that seems to do us all really well is just to cultivate curiosity and essentially that spark of curiosity is is something that can take you down a path of trying to understand even the most complex things i feel like there's you can learn any subject you like within a kitchen and a garden and the natural world and it's only for your own curiosity or lack thereof that that would prevent you from being able to yeah the benefits that come from just being curious and thinking about things are infinite because there are infinite things to explore and enjoy so if i'm going to simplify it any in any way it's just culture your curiosity yeah yeah that's really good i'm absolutely there i always joke with people i don't understand how anyone can say they're bored when you have a natural world that is still so mostly unknown yeah. <laughs> we yeah. think we know it but actually the reality no. the reality is it's because it's a lot bigger and deeper and wormholy than we've given it credit for yes so yes. how can people find you how can they reach you reach us on the ethicurian on the socials sign up to our mailing list via our website first which is um, what's website the ethicurian.com okay we've long used the mailing list as a way of building a closeness with our customers sure. and our guests um, much in the same way that i've valued every time that your email drops yeah. that's been inspiring so we've worked on that and we treat that um, as our first conversation point for our guests so we always we, we this is the first place the first time you'll hear about anything that we'll do before yeah. we put it on the socials or, or whatever we're easy to reach these days <laughs> yeah it means a lot that we are still having a, a really great conversation with all of our guests that are on that mailing list that'll be the place where we're going to continue the conversation in and around what we're doing in the future and and from from this point on and yeah. that's great thanks that's for, that's really for good reminding us yeah that's great that. <laughs> yeah so thank you again no thank Matt. you robin yeah been great yeah and see what unfolds Thank you very much. Yeah. All the best.